0: .NET Rocks, episode 1103, with guest Paul Mooney. Recorded Thursday, February 12th, 2015.
1: And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. Hey, hey, hey. What's up, Richard? I'm doing the thing with the stuff, still. I uh, Remember Strange Loop? I do. Your company, yes. not the other one. Sold, the uh, two
0: roughly two years ago this month, February. Uh, oh, wow. S- still settling up some things. There's some escrows and stuff. So I actually got some Strange Loop-related email today, and we're we're finishing up some stuff. Selling a company is not a simple process, and uh, there's still no. pieces of it ending.
1: Do they still have you on as a consultant from time to time? Uh, no, I haven't had to work
0: with uh, the, uh, the buyer... Um, radware for, for pretty much since the start but there are other obligations there's some legal things around patents and that sort of stuff it, and there's mm. always you know any there's no acquisition where everybody's happy there's always going to be a few disgruntled folks in one form or another so they you usually have to settle up agreements with them as well so it's yeah. a it's a long painful story but uh it's uh
1: it's like know. a it's like a it. it seems to me like you go into a relationship knowing you're going to break up, right? (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, yeah, so everybody has a different idea of what that breakup's going to be like. Yeah.
0: Well, and you got to make sure everyone's getting some value from it. And then there's folks that that, that, are happy with their values, some that aren't. And so, yeah, we're still finishing. Anyway, That's that's my news for the day, my friend. My news is I'm recording from home today. Yes, I I, it's, I don't get to be the engineer very often, but today I have extra squigglies and lines
1: and things that's fun for me. And it still sounds good because I actually have one of those crazy booths in my house. Oh, right. Yeah, you moved one of the recording booths to your house. Hilarious. Yeah. Yep. So in the meta show, which came out today as we record this, mm-hmm. you know, the show where we talked about how we do all this stuff. You uh, remember me talking about the sound booths that I got. Well, I actually got three of them, and one of them came to my house. And it was just for days like this when I felt like working from home. Yeah. You know, so, I'm
0: getting close to renovating my office, and I may well put a booth in finally.
1: Yeah, I love my booth. All right. Well, anyway, let's roll things along with the music to better know a framework. <laughs> All right, buddy. What do you got? Man, I'm talking Windows 10 running on a Raspberry Pi. You love that, don't you? We haven't talked about it yet, and I think we really need to. Go to tinyurl.com slash winpi2. That's W-I-N-P-I-2. I uh, I did a Hansel Minutia,
0: and we actually uh Google Hangout it. We we streamed it, and uh, Hanselman's got his Raspberry Pi two. He 3D printed a little cover for it, a little case for it. We were talking through mm-hmm. some of
1: the elements on this. It's amazing. It's really interesting about this announcement. First of all, is that Windows, any form of Windows runs on a Raspberry Pi is just amazing. Yes, but the Raspberry Pi two is like. A quad core processor. It, you, you can get it with a gig of RAM for like 60 bucks. What? HDMI output,
0: gigabit ethernet. Like it's. 60 bucks. This is a, a, a lightweight
1: PC for under $100. And if I'm not mistaken, the 512 meg RAM version is 35 bucks, right? Wow. What's interesting though is if you go to a place like Amazon and you see the comments, the people who are used to, you know, $35 being expensive
2: <laughs> and, you know,
1: liking <laughs> liking to do everything are, are talking about how it's overpriced and it won't work with the old stuff. And, yeah, that may be true, but for people who are new to the Raspberry Pi and coming in because of Windows 10, it's, a, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's really Wonderful. compelling. And I, I just... Think you know we used to we used to have on uh, in the middle of the show when people would tell us what they would do with five thousand dollars every once in a while I'd buy a lot of Raspberry Pis. right you know <laughs> imagine what you would do with a room full of Raspberry Pis all running Windows ten you know the most important thing about this Raspberry Pi two and the fact that it runs Windows ten
0: it's an ARM processor like anybody who's talking about ARM is dead for Windows. Uh, And I don't think that's true. It may not be exactly the product you think it's going to be, but
1: this is pretty interesting. And also, um, if you take a look in the press, you'll see that uh, I think it was Mary Jo Foley first talked about Windows 10 for IoT. And there's going to be essentially a version that runs for free on this stuff. So... There you go. Awesome. They're just making it easy for us. Yeah, no, it's very exciting stuff. No two ways about it. All right. Well, we'll see what the future holds.
0: Uh, who's talking to us, Richard? Hey, I grabbed a comment off of show 992, the one we did with uh, Anthony Eden, when we talked about, actually, we talked mostly about languages in that show. Remember, we talked a little Go, and we talked a little Java, and we talked a little .NET, and mm-hmm. even Erlang, as well as talking about the wonder that is DN simple. And I don't think I could say that enough, how wonderful DN yep. Simple is. It really uh, is wonderful. And Dominic Finn had a great, I think, very relevant comment. He said, a cool show. I love the approach of using the right language for the job instead of getting fixed on one solution and Paradigm. I think the same applies on the .NET stack. I use VB.NET for XML-related stuff. Hey, we just talked about that. Mm-hmm. And other .dot .com finery. Yes. And C Sharp for the bulk of my web work, F Sharp for my release tasks, and all the AI stuff I'm working on. And even then, he's still living largely in the .NET world there because there are other, you know, Erlang can play and Java can play and Go can play. They all can talk Mm -hmm. to each other. It's just an interesting world now when we think about working in multiple languages. Sure is. So, Dominic, thank you so much for your comment. I'm not sure if we – I searched for your name. I thought we'd already sent you a mug. But even if we – whether we have or not, I'm going to send you another one. Uh, .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a DotNet Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at or on any of our mobile apps.
1: We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And that brings us to our guest. Paul Mooney is the creator of the Encrypted Token Pattern and Armor, its .NET implementation. He specializes in taking apart problems, designing solutions, and providing those solutions as downloadable software frameworks available under the MIT license. Paul occupies the space between engineer and architect. He's happiest when designing solutions to problems from a conceptual point of view, while getting his hands dirty assembling the nuts and bolts, and likes to be called a technology consultant. Mr. Mooney is most accomplished in C Sharp in terms of language, however, is also very proficient in JavaScript, Java, and Google's Go language. He is a software development mentor and enjoys guiding teams of engineers toward effective technology-driven solutions to real-world problems. Welcome, Paul.
2: Hi, guys. How are you?
1: Doing great, doing great. Wow, it sounds like uh, you really have your hands full in a, on any given day.
2: Uh, Yeah, that's pretty much it. And uh, not only that, but my my wife just gave birth to a little girl a few weeks ago. So, um, yeah, that's uh, compounded the the, the, the amount of work.
1: Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you very much. Yeah, congratulations. Is this 1.0?
2: Yeah, that's it. Thank you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And that's it? (laughs) Only (laughs) shipping one version of human?
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) So... um. Yeah, so where do you want to start here with uh, TDD across platforms and in .NET, .NET, and Java? Can you do both the same way at the same time and still maintain your sanity?
2: Well, um, to be um, full disclosure, you know, I started my blog uh, late last year, have more than anything else, and. Um, you know as i say i specialize in providing performance optimized frameworks uh, specifically around security and uh, performance optimization but um you know i was um i decided to start blogging on the subject and um i noticed that i was getting a reasonable amount of traffic in from my blog but um i thought i could uh, i thought i could increase that a little bit so um i thought to myself you know what's a good hook that will will um will bring people in and, and drive traffic towards my blog, and, um, it occurred to me that recently I've been, uh, interviewing a little bit, and, um, you know, the, the, the interview process, uh, it's been about four or five years since I have interviewed anywhere, and uh, the process has changed somewhat now. Um, I know, I noticed that most companies, for example, they, um, you know, they require you to come in for a day and spend a day coding with them, or else give you some sort of an advanced technical assessment to complete in order to determine your eligibility. And um, there was one company in particular, um, most of the tests, a lot of the tests I did were sort of run-of-the-mill stuff, you know, multiple-choice questions, what i polymorphism and so forth. But um, there was one company I did a technical test for, and um, it was basically, it was in Java, Java 8, and um, what they wanted was a multi-threaded application that simulated a robot factory and, um, as part of that simulation, you had to build in, into the multi-threaded aspect of it, um, inconsistencies and stuff like that. So, you know, parts that would fail over randomly or, or, or would take excessively long times to complete and basically see how the rest of the system, um, performed while under that kind of stress. And, uh, I actually enjoyed the, the assessment so much so that I submitted it. I think two or three days, three days early and, uh, sent a thank you now to the guy who uh, issued the test to me because it was, um, it was, as we say in Ireland, great crack. It was really good fun to work on. So yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It occurred to me that I th- I, th- I thought to myself, well, that's actually one of the most uh, enjoyable coding tasks I've done in a while. And, um, it was a Java role. So I did the, the test in Java. And uh, so I decided, okay, well, why don't I, um, take that and, uh, you know, put a similar sort of assessment online as part of my blog. And, uh, you know, as I say, my blog is all about, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, heavily operating here on sort of John Sonmez's um, perspective in terms of, you know, finding your 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 niche and uh, establishing your brand and what have you online. And in that regard, my brand is very much around, I suppose, providing performance-optimized frameworks. So, I'm sort of going a little bit off-topic a bit, but then again, you know, uh, I suppose when you, when you get into TDD, object-oriented development and so forth, they are in essence, I suppose, the the fundamentals of providing performance-optimized solutions. So, I said, why not... um why not talk about those online a little bit? And, uh, so I took the sort of the example of the robot factory and, um, augmented it a little bit, took it, uh, you know, changed it up a bit and, uh, you know, removed some of the multi-threading aspects of it and just applied it from a test-driven development and object-oriented development perspective. And, um, I must admit my, my, my traffic has, has, uh, quadrupled, if not as four or five times the amount since, um, since I started blogging on the subject. Um, I hmm. primarily, operate in C-sharp, but um, I said, you know, well, I'll put it in a Java as well, because, you know, number one, I did the initial assessment in Java, and number two, it doubles the, the audience effectively.
0: Do you think there's a lot of folks that are interested in, in having access to both, like working in C-sharp and Java
1: is a thing? Stole my question, Richard. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to ask. That's funny.
2: Okay. yeah. Uh, well, it's a really good question. Um, Well, I know myself. Personally, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I suppose one thing I know it's somewhat changed now with um, with Xamarin and so forth, and the, the you know the announcement that the .dot NET framework is going to be made available as open source. Right. But you know, um, I, I mean, you guys were talking earlier on about how you use the right language for the job and the mm-hmm. right tool for the job, the right framework. Yeah. I think in certain cases, you know, sometimes uh, Unix or, or Linux type solutions often fit the bill uh, for for as a uh, to you know, solve particular problems. And uh, in that regard, I've always sort of been wary that, you know, hey, you know, my C-sharp skills are increasing here year on year and and what have you, but my my Java skills, not so much. I'd I'd like to be able to jump onto any given Java project of uh, any advanced degree of complexity and, you know, be quite comfortable in that regard just specifically more than anything else to be able to operate on sort of non-windows environments but that's my own opinion so um, I'm, I'm i guess based on that there there must be other folks out there who have uh, <laughs> similar sort of mind frames
1: you know we used to we used to a- ask people on this show you know how close is c sharp to java these days like how how java like is c sharp and now i'm find myself wanting to ask the other question which is how C sharp like is Java these days? In other words, what features of C sharp have made their way into Java and which ones haven't? You know, the language.
2: One of the things that I suppose I've focused heavily on lately in the last year or two in terms of C sharp development has been the, um, the whole, the whole async await concept, you know, oh, yeah. which, um, I'm not sure I don't think uh, I haven't uh, I haven't done any of that in Java yet uh, from a practical perspective but as far as I'm aware that's that hasn't made it over uh, correct me if I'm wrong you now
1: Yeah I don't know either
2: Yeah yeah um I suppose from within the context of of uh, my blog and, and what ha- and so forth um I'm really focusing on the fundamental elements you know from an object oriented sure. perspective so it's it is quite low level um I suppose what what I had planned on doing was once the 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 series on object oriented design and test driven design is complete i'd probably augment that a little bit with uh, by introducing you know sort of a multi threaded example and um, i suppose when when i do that um, i'll really be diving into the, the the complexities of both languages and i'll probably be in a better position to answer the question then but for the moment um for the moment they seem to be on a par but um you know uh, the differences between the two it's difficult to say, really.
0: Mm-hmm. A little uh, Stack Overflowing turned up that there are no capabilities for async await built into Java, but there are a number of libraries that do it using fibers, including Jetlang, Kilim, and Quasar. Okay, so this yeah. is the whole idea Java, of lightweight threads. So
1: Java. dot util. Yeah, which Not is more. They say it's more like the TPL. The, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the, the, the thing is they're both virtual machine languages. Like they're way more similar than they are different. It's always the question of why would I use both together? But they're, I'm wondering if they're, they're good at the same things other than I don't want to rewrite stuff. I just want to interoperate. There's not really an advantage one way or the other. It's just sort of skills.
1: But I guess when it comes to testing, are you typically running into situations where people are trying to do the same app? In Java and in C Sharp and want to keep those tests as close as possible? Or I guess that's what I'm asking. Or or are you just talking about somebody who uh, is going to do test driven development in both languages on different projects?
2: Yeah, um, essentially, as I said, um, it's it's really to reach a, a more varied audience. If I'm honest, you know, um, because uh, the, at a fundamental level, as you said, they are uh, effectively they're, well, they're very similar, if not mm-hmm. the same, um, yeah. in terms of their, their structure. So, uh, so yeah, I figured if I could reach out to um, to C sharp developers and Java developers at the same time, um, well, I mean, number one, I get a lot more traffic, and number two, um, I sure. suppose uh, it helps a lot more folks.
0: Yeah, more folks can understand and sort of grapple with these things do you find uh i mean you're off in the market right now trying to you know, getting interviewed are people embracing tdd is that the, is that an expectation for a modern employer now
2: Absolutely. I mean, um, from from my perspective, I'm sure it's the same uh, in the U.S., but um, in Ireland, yeah, I mean, pretty much uh, every, especially if you're looking at C-sharp roles and so forth, um, TDD is pretty much a uh, prerequisite now in terms of, you know, a skill set that, that that's, a, that's a required attribute of any developer, um, which is, uh, I suppose, has led to, you know, um, uh, to preempt the next question, <laughs> uh, has sort of led to... Everyone sort of jumped on board. If you like, you know, TDD came out, and you know, in the beginning, and like everything else, it was really cool. And um, only a few sort of um, really good developers understood it. And then it sort of branched out, and now it's at the point where it's very saturated, and um, everybody sort of uh, claims to be an expert in it. You know, like way. Anyway, and uh, what I've found from that is that, uh, like, a, like a lot of things, when when um, when any sort of concept or paradigm or framework gets to that level, generally it gets surrounded with a lot of um, a lot of noise. Uh, a lot of kind of superfluous, uh, unnecessary, um, I suppose, dogma, uh, to be to be fair. And one of the things yeah. that I wanted to to, to to put across in the blog was just to break it down to a very sort of minimalistic and, and um, straightforward uh, form. So I was so, like, look, look, you want to learn test-driven development or object-oriented development. Okay, let's just break this down into plain English and explain to you the, the, the concepts at a fundamental level.
1: I like how you started with performance optimization being one of the benefits of TDD. Because you don't often think of that. In fact, when I think of, you know, TDD versus the way we've done it forever, (laughs) which is probably the wrong way. Um, I think of, well, it's going to take more time to do TDD. So the code may, I, you know, I never really think about the code executing more efficiently or faster or more being more performant, but I certainly do think of, um, the, the time and effort that it will take to do test-driven development versus traditional development so how do those things relate
2: well um i suppose uh, on one argument is that it comes down to practice you know um, i mean they are you know fundamentally two different approaches and um <laughs> i think we've all been in situations where it's very tempting just to dive in and start um uh, you know, implementing a solution immediately without stepping back and taking into account the the overall design or or any sort of testing that that, that may be involved or necessary. But um, you know, I I think every I, I personally, you know, I I struggled. Well, I wouldn't say I struggled, but um, you know, I I, I certainly had to take um slow steps in the beginning with test driven development, and um, you know, to get my head around it. But I, I suppose you quickly move on until until it becomes second nature. Um. You know, and uh, as I said, there is um, there there can be a lot of noise around it, a lot of unnecessary sort of elements to it. Um, you know, for example, you you know, you, you often open up a code base and you see someone who's got a class called person and that person has a property called, um, we'll say arm and that uh, there's a test associated with that where if they say like, you know, uh, person P equals new person, um, arm equals new arm and then assert that the arm is not null or something like that, which is, you know, completely, uh, <laughs> sort of missing the point, I suppose. But, um, once you, uh, I suppose from my own perspective, uh, practice, I suppose, um, it gets you to the point where you can code effectively from a test-driven perspective, uh, quickly as you could, or near enough as makes no difference as you would if you were to dive straight into the implementation. I suppose another aspect of that is the, the the complexity of the the problem or the solution you're putting together. I mean, what I've often found is sometimes TDD can save time in that you know you're sort of predicting from an almost pessimistic perspective what is going to go wrong with the code, what's going to go wrong with the various components. And in that regard, you're, 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 I suppose, preempting, um, any sort of design issues that may occur, you know, further on down the line. Whereas if you approach the project without, from a non-TDD perspective, where you just start writing code, (laughs) I think it can cost a lot more in the long run when you get, like, we'll say, to the midpoint of the project and then you realize, you know, oh crap, you know, this isn't going to work. I have to pretty much go back to the drawing board.
1: In your blog, you specifically say, uh, but what do object-oriented and test-driven design have in common with performance optimization? And uh, then you bring, bring out a few points about that. That's what I was really going for here is how does TDD make your app more performant, or what does it have in common with performance optimization?
2: I beg your pardon. Sure. No problem. Uh, well, I suppose the, the, the main thing is you get minimalistic code. You know, you, you only end up with TDD with the code that's absolutely necessary for the application to run. Uh, so in that regard, um, there's less, you know, I do mention in the, in the blog, less working parts, less, uh, less interactions and so forth. And uh, therefore less scale for less latency, less scale for failure and uh, potentially f- uh, smooth, more smoothly running code. Okay. You
0: know, as a guy who's done a lot of performance tuning for websites and things, I find myself building benchmarking tools around services because often the code that runs the fastest is the hardest to read. Yeah. So it's like if you don't know that this is actually providing benefit, you need to take it back out again. And so I've actually been, you know, I'm going to rewrite this method. You know, I've, I've used method profiling to bubble this issue to the top. This is the method we're spending a lot of time in. A little bit of savings here would make a big difference. Or we don't call this very often, but it runs very slowly. So, you know, it's just worth optimizing. But actually figuring out, did you make an optimization? I've never thought of TDD that way. I've always thought about functional testing around it, not performance testing with TDD.
1: Hmm.
2: Yeah.
0: It's interesting. Is that a normal thing for you? Is that, do you actually put performance metrics around your tests?
2: Of late, yes, it, it sort of is. I mean, um, I, I kind of fell, out, I, I wouldn't say I fell into the area of performance optimization. Um, it, it started effectively about two years ago when I was tasked with the, the, the company I worked for at the time to um, look at security and uh, also look at uh, performance optimizing uh, the applications uh, suite of sort of um, highly available uh, Multiple million user applications uh, based in the US educational market. So, um, in doing so, I sort of, um, you know, uh, ended up, as I said, I wouldn't say I fell into the whole area of performance performance optimized development but um one of the things that i took from it was that you know these are the kind of things that you need to think about or think about early on because once the application is at a certain level of maturity it's very difficult to retrofit that kind of thing so right i, w- I wouldn't say that i, I performance test i mean I, I do a lot of bdd as well you know behavior driven design mm-hmm. um it's it's very difficult i suppose to implement performance uh, metrics in tests because you know i suppose Technically, they shouldn't really be there because you're only testing a component. But, um, with, with BDD, yeah, I tend to, because that's a little, a little bit more loose, I find, in terms of if you can actually interact with real components as opposed to mocks and things like that. So I would tend to, you know, um, uh, use behavioral driven tests to, um, plug into, I suppose, performance metrics. I often do it, uh, to provide a practical example. Um, I came up with a, a JSON. Parsing library for C Sharp there, um, Mm. a couple of about a year ago. Um, Specifically, it was to avoid things like the large object heap and in 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 .Net and things like that. You know, if you've got large JSON payloads over eighty five kilobytes, and um, what I wanted to do there was compare to other. JSON parsing frameworks, you know, to to, to guarantee that you are actually getting, despite the fact that, as you alluded to, the code may be slightly more complex, but just to prove sort of that you are actually getting benefit from it. Uh, So in that regard, like, I'd have um, uh, various tests which would, uh, you know, execute a method using my framework with a number of other frameworks and compare the response times of both.
1: I like how in your blog posts, and and I'm referring to, the series of blog posts that were you know that prompted this discussion uh, yeah. at inside the cpu.com about ori- object oriented test driven design in c sharp and java sure. so um the w- one, one of the things that i like is you say basically the rule of thumb is abstract everything <laughs> and i can't <laughs> tell you how how good advice that is and uh
2: <laughs> thank you very much yeah
1: yeah then any time that you find yourself in a in you know coded into a corner make a yeah. lab, make another layer of abstraction It's usually <laughs> the answer
2: yeah that's a uh, very good advice all right it's a funny actually point on that actually when i that was one of the things i mentioned earlier how you know it took a, a little bit of time to get my head around the concept of tdd in the beginning and um the concept of abstracting everything was one i actually struggled with because you know i i was uh, something of a purist from an object oriented perspective so if i had a class um which didn't have an abstraction or so we'll say and um you know i was putting together some some unit tests for it or or um or for another test rather that uh, would interact with that component you know the rule of tdd is you can't uh, have your, your testing one unit at a time so if it requires uh, another unit you mock it which means that i'd have to take my 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 implementation that doesn't have an abstraction and uh, effectively abstract it simply to facilitate the existence of the unit tests, you know, and from a, from a, I suppose, a dispassionate and a purist perspective on on the object oriented side, I, I thought to myself, well, geez, I hate that, you know, that's, that's pretty crap. I don't want to have to, I don't want to have to change my, my, um, my beautiful model to, to 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 just to facilitate the unit test but um you know i've obviously done a, a complete 180 on that now and completely agree with you um as i say in the post that uh, now look just abstract everything it's uh it works out easier in the long run and it just makes things a lot more flexible
0: code's not done until it's testable
2: yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
0: it's just it's a, it's an interesting thought, right? Generally, you're thinking about testing as this sort of necessary evil. The idea that you'd adapt your code to make it more testable is, uh, I think, it's going to be resisted by a lot of folks, too. It's like, well, why why would I do that? But, I, you know, if it's not testable, it's not safe.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. And, um, you know, I suppose um, that does require uh, <laughs> pretty much a, a great degree of abstraction.
0: Yeah, it's just, you need as much abstraction as you need until it's too much.
2: Like, yeah, yeah, effectively. Yeah, <laughs> there is a point
0: where you're like, I have the do method that calls to all the factories and passes back stuff. <laughs> and, and, uh, yeah, know, it's, it's only one one method and one and one parameter stuff. How hard could that be to manage?
1: I also love how in this blog post you're not using real, really boring examples of code and tests. You're actually. Oh, yeah. uh, Using the the Star Wars Mech Warrior assembly process, I think is yes. that how you're doing it? Yeah,
2: that's it exactly. Yeah, I'm. Um, you know, I was uh, a bit of a Mech Warrior fan back in the day, and um, <laughs> so um, you know, I mean, y- you see so many tutorials these days, and they're just not practical, and um, they're you know, they're quite um, boring if that's the right word to describe them. Especially this 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 whole concept of a Hello World application. You know, I mean, nobody's going to remember that. But, you know, a couple of days after they, they do the tutorial, and um, as well as that, a lot of the time I find when you actually implement the code, you say, "Oh, that's great, that's great, that works." You know, from um, a hello world perspective. And then when you actually wanted to do something worthwhile, to solve a real world problem, you, you hit a snag, and you go, "Oh well, they didn't actually cover this in the tutorial." So um, there was a, that's sort of, I guess, the reasoning behind the, the, that particular tutorial that I um, that I that I post about was uh, you know I'm supposed to keep people interested. Um, I remember I read a book a couple of years ago. It was about design patterns, and um, it was by uh, the publisher was um, Head First. Um, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with them, and their whole concept is, you know, they, they have all um, flashy images and so forth associated with their their uh, their tutorials because your 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 brain remembers kind of more exciting pictures as about then um, remembers them better than it will sort of uh, uh, tutorials and so forth.
0: Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is I must be that happy time again
1: you know it it's time to run the should return a laugh after executing joke test
0: <laughs> you fail <laughs> run it again uh it failed if i run it enough times will i get more laughs, <laughs>, <laughs>
1: What is it, uh, the definition of insanity as somebody who executes the same test over and over again and expects to get a different result?
0: Yes, a- a- <laughs> a.k.a. all of QA. <laughs>
1: <laughs> They're insane, I tell you.
0: Yeah, there's a, that's a special kind of crazy.
1: It's actually time to give away a D experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Trey Robbins. Congratulations,
0: Trey. Golf clap yeah. for you. And Carl's not in the studio, so no clappas.
1: No clappas today. <laughs> but uh, Trey just won the Dev DevExpress. And, and again, I still haven't confirmed whether it's universal, but uh, I will do that. But a big pile of awesome from Dev Express if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to dotnetrocks.com. click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the fan club. Also, we like to ask our guest, Paul Mooney, if you had $5,000 U.S. to spend today on technology, what would you buy?
2: Wow, $5,000. Let me think. Uh, I suppose the first thing I'd buy would be a MacBook Air. Um, The rest of it, uh, I'd get a Sidewinder mouse, a Microsoft Sidewinder mouse. Fancy. uh, Yeah, thank you. And uh, the Sculpt keyboard.
1: Would you use the MacBook Air for development?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd primarily use it for iOS development, developing apps, um, maybe a little bit of Java, Go as well. Um, Mm -hmm. i really just couldn't justify getting a macbook pro for the, the 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 price though in that regard so i'd probably stick with an air
0: yes for five grand you can get a macbook pro just not fully loaded because <laughs> yeah because <laughs> apple knows how to charge for hardware that's much we know but you absolutely know, an air is relatively cheap in comparison you have not spent all the money with a keyboard a mouse and an air
2: with the remainder of the money i'd probably um pimp my office or something to that effect you know whiteboard walls all around and a nice there desk and so forth <laughs>
1: You know, yeah. you're the first person that actually said I'd get a whiteboard for the office and, you know, really? make my environment yeah, usually it's all about the technology or sometimes people say I I have everything I need, I'd donate it to charity, but but yeah, getting yeah. it nobody's ever said I'd get a new chair or, you know, a new desk or a whiteboard. So that's interesting. And those are things you use every day, like they're worth spending some money on. Yeah. And they are technology. And
0: not to digress too much, but speaking of whiteboards, have you heard of an app called Office Lens? Office Lens? Office oh. Lens. It's on the Windows phone, and it is specifically for taking photographs of documents or whiteboards, and it cleans it up, straightens it, and contrasts it so you can read them clearly off the photo. What? It's ama- And it's amazingly good. I mean, amazingly good, and nobody knows about it. So I—that is awesome. You know, I've been working in Amsterdam with a trust company. We've literally filled a wall-sized whiteboard with notes over the course of the week. I took a picture of it, ran it through Office Lens, and you can read every detail on it. Wow! It's just you know, because I'm thinking, as soon as you mentioned whiteboard, I'm like, you know, we got to get into smart boards and things like that. There's all this cool technology. Like there are whiteboards out there today, expensive, where after you finish writing it, you hit a button and it prints out a copy of it.
1: Right. There's also, boards. uh, the website says, um, shows a receipt, like it will clean up a It'll receipt clean up receipts. It will well. clean up
0: any document. I took a picture of, uh, a homework assignment that my daughter was working on and, and ran it through office lens. I was like, look, you can see everything. Like it's, it's amazingly good. And, it, and it's just such a, you know, I could spend $5,000 on a smart board with all that amazing technology, or I have this app in my phone.
1: But Done. it looks like it doesn't digitize it. It just like if you take a picture of it at an angle, it straightens, it, straightens it. it out and cleans it up.
0: But it also makes the whites whiter and the and the blacks blacker. Like it increases the contrast, so it's easier to read. Yep.
1: Yep. Sorry, a
0: total yeah, derailment. That. But you just got me going on the whiteboard thing because that's a great thing. We use whiteboards a lot.
1: Yeah, and you know, and I imagine that if you were going to do any sort of OCR, you'd want to run it, your picture through this first. Yeah, you run it through that and then pump it
0: to OCR, you get a pretty good chance it's going to be
1: parsed. Yeah, that's nice. Nice find. Just a random digression. I apologize. You know, one of the things that's really cool when I look through your blog post, uh, and you know, I don't do a lot of Java. In fact, I do no Java. And it's sure. only when I get together with my brother after work, you know, and have a, have a drink, that we actually talk about programming And, uh, that's where I first learned that Java didn't have properties, but there are getters and setters. And we had to get over that little syntactic hump hurdle before we could move on. But I'm just noticing how similar Java and C sharp are when I look through, especially, you know, like in the third, uh, the third part, part two rather, the practical example part two. Sure. You know, you look through some of the, the code. Like the enum is exactly the same, except that yeah. the case, the casing is different. Java's got, uh, uh, camel casing, it looks like. And, uh, yeah. But is that, is that casing just a Java standard across the board? Or was that net? Was that, uh, something that you did just be out of, you know, cultural respect, let's say.
2: Uh, no, actually, as far as I'm aware, it's a it's a standard across the board with um, with Java applications. Um, you know, I um, I use uh, IntelliJ to develop in Java myself, and um, mm-hmm. it, when you format the code, it automatically corrects it to you know to be camel cased. So, um, assume presumably, then it's a, an industrial standard.
0: It's really cool. Yeah, it, it is remarkably similar, and I wonder if we're just looking at a subset of language. You know, that you're not using the C-sharp parts that are unique to C-sharp and the Java parts that are unique to Java, because you are trying to build compatible code.
2: Absolutely. That's exactly the point. Yeah. yeah.
1: Now, here's another question. Where does Xamarin fit into this idea? Because I, I believe you can write in C-sharp and compile in Java. I mean, you can at least do that in Android. Does Does Xamarin have anything for just plain old Java? <sighs>
2: I really don't know uh, to be honest um Xamarin, I'm, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not too favourable in terms of um its implementation um, you know obviously it's a recent announcement and um following following that uh, story with, with interest but um in terms of the implementation I'm not 100% sure on how it's going to work in that regard
1: Yeah I think that's something that I got to put on the back burner and ask the, the Xamarin guys next time I
0: It's sure. absolutely wouldn't it be compelling you know, this idea yeah, that would. doing cross-platform development, I mean, that's what Java was originally supposed to be about. Remember
1: one language, it's, multiple operating systems? Yeah. It's ironic, isn't it, that uh, C Sharp has more cross-platform compatibility than Java these days? Only
0: because Miguel de is amazing, but yes. Yeah, yeah but you know the other part of this is that java became multiple languages too i don't know how much you've dabbled in this paul but you know going into stuff like closure and you know, oh, there's all and kinds Scala. of yeah it's really interesting yeah. languages that run against the jvm
2: absolutely the
0: uh, Here's a question then. I mean, isn't there a case here? Once you, once you're looking at multiple languages, you're doing testing for writing the tests themselves in a separate language. I've seen folks use Ruby as the language to do the tests against stuff like mm-hmm. C sharp and Java
2: i I love that idea. I'm not sure about you guys, but i I absolutely love that idea um particularly, I like the idea of being able to script the tests you know to be mm-hmm. able to use something like uh like Ruby or Perl or, or even powershell to i suppose be able to test them um, i wouldn't say i wouldn't say on an ad hoc basis, but uh you know to to be able to write dynamic tests in real time and test them against sort of known abstractions and known interfaces and things like that i i I think the idea that's really cool.
0: Plus you're talking about a language that's really terse too. Like I don't know that I want to build apps in Ruby, but I've been dabbling in Ruby more because I'm playing with Chef because, you know, DevOps stuff. Yeah. It's a very pleasant language. Like it just in the sense of you don't, doesn't take a lot of characters to get stuff done. And so it feels (laughs) like tests would be pretty pleasant to write that way.
2: Absolutely. I'm I'm exactly the same. It's a, you know, it's it's a great, uh, particularly when you're. Writing scripts against uh, like yeah, big data or something like that, like Ruby, I think is fantastic. But I wouldn't go. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily build an application in it either.
0: Well, it's sort of this abstraction, and we we're talking about abstractions, but it's like ah, Ruby's an abstraction on top of the JVM. Da 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 da. That gets slow.
2: <laughs>
0: but I find, I mean, you're a performance guy. Do you care how fast your tests run?
2: Uh no no not particularly no. um I mean the tests are, are generally predominantly run on, on on developers local machines you yeah. know I mean um uh, obviously that you might have something like Team City and so forth but um I, that's that's more of as you said the DevOps type thing so I've I've never I've never been in a situation where there was a, a requirement or an SLA that uh, code needed to be deployed uh, uh, in a specific manner or by, or within a specific time frame.
0: I I have absolutely run up against we need our tests to run faster. It's Really? Yeah, well, just because they were doing a continuous deployment model and they want to be able to make changes and have it out within the hour. Wow. You know, you get a real serious set of regression tests, you could run all day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember talking to Carl, was it Phil Hack? They were talking about the testing platform for Visual Studio itself. And it was like 18 hours worth of tests. Wow. But the the nice part is because tests are discrete units, you just decompose against more and more machines and run everything in parallel. And so, you know, back in the dot-com boom, we did that by buying lots of hardware, but that's back when we bought lots of hardware. Today, it's just the cloud. Light up the instances you want, load them with things, and run blocks of tests against them. How many would you like? It's sort of a trade. Do I write, fire up one VM, run all the tests... 10 VMs are running a tenth of the time. Like, what's more expensive? You run one for longer or more for less time? And when you're playing for utility computing, it's remarkably close cost wise.
2: Wow. Yeah, it sounds fascinating.
0: It's a crazy way to think about this problem, but it's, you know, I, I like the way you're taking this on with the abstractions so that I keep my blocks of tests small. Then yeah. I can spread them across. My, my thought right away is I can spread that out. I'll run that across many VMs. Absolutely. But maybe that's just me and I've got weird problems.
2: <laughs> no, I I completely agree and um as you said one of the, well, that's one that's actually an element i'm working on at the moment the sort of microservice architecture um where you know you've got sort of you, you can scale out you can you can have an um an application that has logarithmic complexity and that you know um pretty much you want it to run faster you just spin up more micro instances yeah, um, yeah. which i suppose is, is one one advantage i mean we we alluded to earlier in terms of why java over c sharp and so forth um and I know that's all changed with Xamarin, as we said. But with Java, like a uh, cost often comes into it. So if you're spinning up, we'll say uh, large numbers of instances. Uh, I mean, on AWS, for example. And Azure, uh, obviously Unix instances are somewhat or significantly cheaper than than Windows. Often, uh, last I checked, anyway. So you know, if you can write the same code in Java as you can in C Sharp, you you, you might you might save. Uh, you might save a few bucks, but um, as, as you said, now the, the, the C sharp guys uh, obviously have working with Xamarin and so forth. Uh, Close that gap, which uh, I think is great, because uh, you know it means that you don't have to switch over frameworks anymore.
0: One other thing, I mean, I'm looking at your your posts. And we're talking about you know writing your own JSON parser, and my mo- my oh, yeah. visceral reaction is. Why would you do that? You know, it's like this is a pretty known thing. Do you really think you can write a better one than the Microsoft guys have?
1: (laughs) Do you know that um, there's a great feature of Visual Studio, which I'm going to feature on a better-know framework coming up here, where if you just copy some JSON into the clipboard and you go to edit-paste special, you can paste C-sharp code that is translated from that JSON. In other words, classes that uh, that JSON takes the shape of. Wow. Yeah.
2: Oh, wow, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. It's
1: a very cool feature that yeah. I didn't really I didn't really know hmm. until I started uh, looking at it. For there's also XML. So if you okay. have a huge XML document, and instead of going through the process of creating an XSD and all of that stuff. You just paste that into a new class, uh, you know, a CS file as XML. You know, from it's basically uh, C sharp from XML, wow. and it will create a, a C sharp class that uh, follows that link, and then you can ser- use that as the type to deserialize any JSON object, or in the case of XML, any XML file.
2: Wow, that's really and, interesting. And it works.
1: It's pretty this amazing. Is fast. Yeah, it's paste. Wow. Boom.
0: (laughs) I hear you wrote all this code.
1: (laughs) Still, you know, doing what you did is something that I would do as well, just because I want to know how it works. And I want to know that I could do it.
2: Well yeah I mean that is that is one one uh one motivation behind it obviously the the primary motivation was um as I said the the company I worked for at the time, and um, they used to deal with um massive massively i suppose almost inefficiently sized data structures you know i mean these things were some of them were two three four megabyte jSON files, um which was you know ridiculous sending that kind of stuff back and forth across the web but one of the one of the lesser known problems behind it when I actually drilled into it was that um, memory allocation was uh, spiking and spiraling um, at seemingly random intervals. So when I when I drilled into the problem, what I found was the case was that uh, effectively, all these JSON files, so it was a HTTP request, uh, grabs, grabs uh, something from a database that's all wrapped in JSON and pulled back over the wire. When that JSON was returned, it was um, cached in a string variable. So, you know, if the thing is... Um, if the if the, uh, if the JSON was over 85 kilobytes in size, the .NET framework automatically targeted that um, for the, uh, in terms of garbage collection, in the large object heap, you know? So, um, I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. with the garbage collection, you've got the various generations, 0, 1, and 2, and then the large object heap, which is absolutely where you, where you don't want to be, because... Um, uh, for example, with uh, with, uh, with IIS, what I found was that um, IIS will actually, when when the garbage collector runs, in order to get rid of or to, to to dereference everything in the large object heap, it will effectively suspend every single thread in IIS while that's happening. So there's Ouch. a lot of yeah, a lot of a na- lot of nastiness in that regard, which just simply, kept, despite the fact that the code was all it was all good code, you know, um, the async await. Uh, dependency injection everything like they 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 um you know they that actually put put a good amount of work into developing the application but one thing they hadn't thought about was the size of the payload coming back and forth And the interesting thing about it was that they didn't actually need um, all the data that was contained within the JSON structure. They might only need, you know, one tenth or one hundredth of it in some cases. So that led me to put together the JSON sharp library. Um, I mean, it has all the features of a JSON serializer in terms of being able to serialize and deserialize objects. But um, the primary Mm -hmm. focus or the primary feature in it is actually, which um, is actually a feature which Allows you to return embedded chunks of JSON from within that JSON file itself. So let's say you have nice. a really large, really large JSON file, and um, somewhere deep embedded in there is the actual object you want. JSON sharp will, um, in a very memory efficient way, uh, using it, so it's all done in uh, you know, binary streams effectively. So you're avoiding strings and stuff like that. It will actually drill in, uh, pull out the object you want, and then discard the rest. So you avoid the large object heap, and um, you, win, you win back all that. Memory, so uh, there was a practical um, reason behind the, the library, and um, you know. But obviously, as you as you said, there, it, uh, you know, sometimes you do stuff because you just want to see can you do it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yep.
2: <Totally laughs> well, you learn idiot. so
0: much more about it when you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: and then you know, things that come up when you bump a, up against walls, you know exactly where to implement uh, a new feature. So, yeah, like Absolute. if that if the if the copy and paste thing didn't go you know went 99 percent. well guess what it's not like you can just tweak the one percent that doesn't work i mean you gotta you're gonna have to do it again
2: yeah absolutely
1: well paul where, where did, what's next on your radar what's in your inbox what are you going to be working on coming up here
2: Wow. Um, well, I suppose I'm going to finish off the, the tutorial series on object-oriented and TDD. And um, after that, then, I guess um, I'm going to be looking at uh, microservice microservice architecture, uh, primarily in C Sharp. But um, we might do a little bit of Java as well. And if uh, you know, time permitting, I'd, I'd really love to do some examples in Google Go as well.
1: Awesome. Well, that okay. sounds good. Keep us, uh, keep us in the know.
2: Oh, thank you very much, and uh, I really enjoyed the show, guys, and I appreciate the invite. Thank you very much.
1: And we really enjoyed having you. And we'll see you, dear listener, next time on .NET Rocks.